Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Unlocking your sleep potential, brought to you by CleanMyBed.com. So welcome to our first episode of a very special series on sleep. And uh, we have some very special guests over the next uh, six episodes of this podcast um, who will take you through pretty much every part of the sleep process from the understanding of what sleep is about to the sleep effect on people who are elite sportsmen and right through to people who are adolescents, how sleep affects them. And it's very surprising that sleep affects adolescents very different from the rest of us. So my co-host is Dr. Jill Warner who has a BSc in Immunology and Physiology and a PhD in Allergy from the University of London. She's currently an honorary professor in Pediatrics at the University of Cape Town and was involved in Allergy and Immunology in the Division of Medicine at Imperial College London. She'll be specializing very much on the allergy aspect of sleep. And so Jill, welcome to the podcast. I know you've done a lot of the hard work and the big miles on this because um, all the people that we've got as, as our guests over the next six podcasts are people you've got hold of. Um, because of your reputation, they've decided to come on this podcast. So an exciting few episodes ahead for us. Absolutely, Mike. I mean, it's just been wonderful how enthusiastic everybody has been about coming to talk to people because I think this whole aspect of, of sleep is becoming more and more important and more and more important for all sorts of aspects of life, which is what we're going to cover over the next uh, six podcasts. And uh, our very special guest, and it, it really is great that we have her on the very first podcast, because I can't think of anybody who is more qualified to speak about uh, sleep. And it's Dr. Ali Hare, who is a consultant physician in respiratory and sleep medicine at the Royal Brompton Hospital. And she also specializes in sleep disorders and is president of the British Sleep Society. Ali, welcome to our podcast. Um, is it, it sounds like looking at your, your pilmares here that you have a real interest in this space. Um, how did that all kind of start for you? Well, thanks, and and, for, and thanks ever so much uh, to Jill for, for for inviting me. It's it's a delight to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, my background, as you said, is in uh, respiratory medicine. So I'm qualified as a respiratory consultant, and and um, as you may or may not know, sleep specialists. One of the great things about sleep medicine is people can tend to come from a variety of backgrounds. So sleep specialists come from a respiratory background, largely because of uh, issues with sleep-related breathing problems. They come from neurology backgrounds. They come from ear, nose, and throat backgrounds in relation to uh, sleep apnea and snoring. And of course, we have um, all of our wonderful physiologists who kind of lead on our on our sleep diet diagnostics and, and treatment work. So we come from a huge um, background, really, a, a really, gen, a really, really multi-professional team. And that's one of the things I love about sleep medicine. I mean, it is kind of almost like a, a dark world, this idea of sleep, because <laughs> we don't know enough about it. We think we know a lot enough about it. And I'm certainly in the next six episodes, we're going to know more than before. But maybe let's let's start at the beginning. What What is sleep? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think you're absolutely right. One of the things and the wonderful things about working in sleep medicine is it is a relatively new field in medicine. And so, uh, you know, we're learning new things about sleep all the time. And this this big question about what happens when we sleep and why we sleep um, is 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 a really interesting, exciting one. And as you say, we're not we're probably not completely there yet with it. What we used to think was that sleep was kind of a shutting down process, you know, a very much a process of kind of the brain and the body shutting down um, for a period of rest and recovery. And certainly rest and recovery is part of it. But actually, in, in many stages of sleep, the brain is is as active as it is in wake. And indeed, some parts of the brain uh, can be even more active. So it, there, whilst there is a process of recovery and rest, this is in the context of a very active brain at times. So a really fascinating um, physiologic period um, uh, in in all mammalian life, actually, in all, all animal life. So when you say that it's 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 a process rather than just a sort of a basically switching off of the body, yeah. t- take us through the the various components of sleep. I mean, we all know kind of what REM is and all that sort of thing, but it could kind of take us through what the components are and what they mean and and what what part of that sleep process are they. So for human sleep, and, and, and sleep does vary across the animal kingdom, um, there are four stages of sleep. So lighter sleep stages, and these are known as non-REM, stages one and two, and then deeper sleep, also known as slow-way sleep or stage three sleep. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the, the stage of sleep most people are aware of, REM sleep. So we have non-REM and REM sleep. Um, but, I mean, I would say, you know, we sort of discovered this kind of phenomenon of, of, of REM and therefore non-REM sleep about 65, 70 years ago now. Um, we still don't really know why we need these two states of sleep. Um, but certainly in, in human adults, we get this sort of predictable and cyclical pattern in our in sleep. And so typically we start with a brief stage of light and one sleep, and then we progress into this cycle with deeper non-REM stages and two and then three and a brief period of REM sleep before returning to non-REM sleep to complete what's roughly a 90 minute cycle in, in human beings. And then yes, through the night, sorry. Ali, just, just for people who may not be aware of all the terminology, REM stands for yeah, rapid so eye movement. REM is it? rapid eye movement sleep, a really fascinating sleep stage where, uh, and this is the stage where the brain waves and brain activity looks very similar to wakefulness activity. And this very active brain is in the context of a paralyzed body. Um, so all our muscles do have this period of rest during REM, rapid eye movement sleep, apart from the eye muscles for the rapid eye movements that are diagnostic of that sleep stage and the diaphragm muscle, which keeps us breathing. Um, and, and so this is classically the sleep where we dream, um, but you know, there's some evidence that we do have dreams in other, uh, in non-REM sleep stages as well. So yeah, so that's, that's kind of the, 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 the classical REM sleep. Carrying about every ninety minutes. When you say that rapid eye movement, I'm, I'm I'm being a bit picky here, but what is actually happening to the eye when they when they, they are talk rapidly about rapid moving eye? from side to side, from side <laughs> to side. So if you if you were able to see that eye when it was in that sleep stage, yep. it, would, it would go side to side, like rapidly. almost a shaking a, a shaking movement. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and you, do you have any idea why that why that happens? Uh, why the eye movements happen? Yes. I, I don't think we do know why that is. No. <laughs> It's bizarre, isn't it, in some respects? 
Yes, I mean, I, I think I think to be honest, the, the the more interesting thing about about that rather than the eye movements is the activity, the brain activity that you see on EEG, which, as I say, is it, it's almost indistinguishable from from wake brain waves. Um, and so the, the the kind of diagnosis of REM sleep is is based on seeing the rapid eye movements on the eye movement monitoring and paralysis of the muscles on the basis of a chin EMG and monitoring um, the chin muscle activity. Um, because actually, if you just looked at the brain waves, you, you might find it hard to determine that that individual is asleep rather than awake. Wow. Okay. All right. So those we understand those cycles. So are those cycles that when you say roughly roughly ninety minutes, obviously that depends on different individuals. Not everybody's yes. the same in terms of that cycle I dimension. Correct. And this is a human sleep cycle. So cycles look different in other species, but it's roughly 90 minutes. And and, and during the, the night, there'll be brief returns to wakefulness, brief returns to stage N1, but largely that 90 minute cycle will continue throughout the night. W- what we do see, though, is that the relative durations of N2, N3 and REM sleep, so lighter, deeper, and, and REM sleep change over the night. So in the first half of the night, you'll see much more in the way of deep sleep or N3 sleep. And in the latter half of the night, you'll see much more in the way of uh, REM sleep, REM sleep, and you might not see any deep sleep at all. Whereas N2 sleep, we see throughout the night, and that, that constitutes about half of your, of your night's sleep. So what we think is that these lighter sleep stages are kind of gatekeepers between wake and deep sleep or wake and REM sleep. Um, and, and as to why that happens, I, I think that's that's very interesting as well. So, you know, it, it's a bit, it's odd, isn't it, to think that you have to cycle through these stages all the way through the night. And, you know, you might wonder why it isn't the case that we just move from light sleep to deep sleep to REM sleep and then wake up or, or back to light sleep and wake up, why we keep cycling. And we think this constant dialogue between non-REM and REM sleep is really important in kind of reprocessing and repackaging our neural pathways at nighttime. So it's relevant to learning, it's relevant to memory. And so that throughout the night, there is this constant conversation happening or this dialogue happening between non-REM and REM sleep, which is probably why we, we have these cycles. So Ali, it's fascinating um, in terms of of the different components of sleep and what each one of them is doing in terms of of, um, renovating our our brains and our bodies for the next morning. Could could you just talk about that a little bit and explain what each part of sleep does in terms of how we wake up the next day? So, yeah, so as I mentioned, I think it's it's what, what we increasingly understand is that the interplay between non-REM and REM sleep is, is really important in human sleep and that this is probably around remodeling our neural circuitry at nighttime. And this is because we have a finite amount of storage space in our brains. And so during sleep, one of the things that's that's happening is we are we're doing cognitive processing, we're laying down memory, we're relating new memory and new learning to existing learning and, and memory. And we're also doing lots of um, often creative problem solving. So creating novel solutions to complex problems that we couldn't necessarily resolve during wakefulness. And increasingly, we think that creative insight or complex problem solving is facilitated by sleep. Your brain is able to make these 
non-obvious creative remote associations between uh, different memory elements um, and that this probably mostly happens during REM sleep um, rather than in non-REM or indeed in, in wakefulness. Um, so, so it's a in, in sort of non-REM sleep, we, we purely consolidate new memories. Um, and in REM sleep, we probably allow these memory traces to sort of mingle and associated with our already stored memories, but in new and, and, and slightly more abstract ways. So in a way, it's like a, it's, it's a filing, it's an opportunity for the brain to f- Put the put things in files when yeah, we sleep. Okay. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is. It is. It is very much a sort of process of of sorting through and filing in an appropriate space based on existing learning, existing memory. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Ali, just tell us if you don't get enough sleep, what happens to your body and your brain, for that matter? Yeah. So uh, you know, um, lack of sleep has a huge range of impacts on both you know your mental health uh, your cognition your performance both in the workplace and of course um as, as you touched on in the introduction um uh, in terms of athletic performance and then over the long term has uh, a very important cardiovascular um impacts and 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 really important impacts on on physical health as well as mental health so we know that Sort of acutely, if you have uh, a bad night's sleep or your sleep is restricted or of poor quality, you tend to have a, a bad day the next day. That's a real phenomenon. We, we all kind of know that in ourselves, but it's a real thing. Bad nights followed by bad days and, and vice versa. And that's because the the relationship between sleep and mental health is very much bidirectional. So poor sleep engenders poor mental health and poor mental health tends to engender poor sleep um and and there's a, a huge amount of research on the relationship between poor sleep and uh, depression and anxiety in particular but poor sleep is is also very much related to as i said in a bi-directional way to a, a variety of mental health disorders and of course many of the treatments many of the medications for uh mental health disorders and particularly uh, depression also impact on sleep and the type of sleep that um that individuals are able to achieve um in terms of kind of the, your, your physical health, we know that uh, poor sleep over the long term tends to result in issues with blood pressure control, cardiovascular risk. So that's the risk of things like heart disease and stroke tends to mean you're you're more overweight. Uh, so you tend to gain weight um, as you lose sleep and tends to affect things like um, sugar metabolism. So it's related to um, impacts in relation to things like developing diabetes. Um, So a huge range of um, sort of negative impacts, really, both, as I say, in terms of mental health and physical health. And then, um, again, as you touched on, in relation to performance, so your ability to think straight, your ability, indeed, to form relationships. So your empathy, your ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes is 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 impacted in a negative way by lack of sleep. Um, so, you know, and, and your ability, as I, as I touched on earlier on, to be creative, to come up with problems, uh, with pro- ability to solve problems, difficult problems, um, if, you, if, you, if you don't have sufficient sleep. Um, and, and of course, athletic performance very much diminished in a, in a wide variety of ways when, when one's sleep is insufficient. And athletes struggle with this a lot, particularly at elite levels, with the amount of travel and, uh, that, that, that they're having to do, and particularly where, you know, kind of traveling to different time zones. Yeah. Just with your work as president of the British Sleep Society, my first question is, 
why is there a British sleep society? What does it intend to do? In other words, I'm sure that it, it relates to all that. And second of all, what do you know about sleep patterns in this modern world? Are they better or worse than in the past? Yeah, so the British Sleep Society um, exists really to support uh, anybody who works in the field of sleep medicine from whatever background. Um, we're very much focused on supporting people from across the um, multi-professional range that work in sleep medicine. So uh, physiologists, clinicians, um, patient groups. Uh, we have many patient representatives um, who are members of our society, people who are working in research in sleep medicine. And, um, and we exist to support those members, but we also have a broader aim, which is to really support um, what we what we've called healthy sleep for all, which is about both looking at how we can support research in sleep medicine and how we can uh, look at even influencing policy to support healthy sleep um, for the nation. So we we have a dual role really to support both people working in sleep medicine, but also supporting um, the British public really in, in in helping them to sleep better. So what's it? So in other words, when you look at the British society, I and mean, you've got interesting things like you have daylight saving that's as as we do this podcast only changed a couple of days ago. Is there a is there a trend or an issue in in sleep in specific that is that is becoming an issue now that requires special attention in terms of sleep? So we are actually looking at daylight saving right now, but I've just been on a call about that this morning and we'll shortly be publishing a position statement on daylight saving, um, which has been somewhat controversial. Um, and, um, you know, often, as you say, the, the kind of clock change at this time of year is slightly gentler than the clock change in spring, which we all tend to find uh, a little bit more tricky. Um, but we will we will shortly be publishing a position statement on daylight saving through the British Sleep Society again, because, as I said, this is part of our public health work um, focused on engendering healthy sleep for everybody. And, and, and is it, it sorry, Julie, you want to butt in there? I was going to say, Ali, I mean, it's also fascinating. Um it is so, so clear now that people are very much focusing on how important sleep is for every aspect of our life. Um, so you've touched on mental health. We've talked about athletes. We're talking about adolescents and children at school and, and how all of this is, is impacting on it. And we are going to be covering in, in the following podcasts each one of those in, in individual um, areas. But just listening to you now, it's fantastic to hear that there are people in a society who are working on all of these aspects that are gonna help people in the way that we, we hope we can help them a little bit by, by listening to what we're, we're doing in, in the series. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really true, and that's what, one of the reasons why you've had so much enthusiasm for people participating in these podcasts is that those of us who work in sleep medicine are very clear that sleep is absolutely crucial to human health and well-being, and we will bang that drum very loudly if you give us the opportunity to do so, like you have in these podcasts. And I think you know one of the things that you know kind of demonstrates how important and, and fundamental sleep is to human health and 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 living. I, I remember reading a really interesting comment as a chap called Alan Rashtafen, who's a sort of eminent um kind of 
ecologist scientist and he said if you think about sort of survival if you were kind of I mean he didn't I'm very much paraphrasing him here, but you know I always think about it, it, it kind of you know if you were sort of an antelope in the Serengeti you know why would you sleep it's a really vulnerable um, state isn't it but you're vulnerable to predators you can't seek food you can't protect your young you can't reproduce so these are all fundamental parts of animal life and yet every animal species that we've studied so far has sleep now sleep looks different in across the animal kingdom as, as i've already mentioned but there is some form of sleep in every animal species that's been studied thus far so that tells you something about how fundamental sleep is to survival and to to life really because if 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 it wasn't so fundamental you know mother nature would have selected it out by now because it doesn't it, it, you know it must serve some sort of really fundamental purpose or it wouldn't exist because it is a it is a real a really vulnerable state in which young are at risk and 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 you know out there in the serengeti you know the the animals very very life is at risk when they when they're sleeping so i think that should tell us something about how fundamental it is and in, and indeed you know, as research continues into what happens during sleep, we increasingly recognise that it is absolutely fundamental to to, to human health and survival. Um, you know, we've we've talked about some of the kind of uh, sort of mental health and and physical health implications. We we also increasingly understand that sleep is a process of sort of removing waste products from the brain. So we know that there's a lymphatic system in the body that removes waste products, and now we understand there is a glymphatic system in the brain that removes waste products. And that system is significantly more active during sleep than it is during wakefulness. So this is also a time for the brain to process its waste products. Um, and and in fact, it's those waste products that that build up in dementia, and particularly in an Alzheimer's dementia. And so increasingly, we recognize that lack of sleep is implicated in the development of dementia. And by contrast, the good news, because we often focus on the negative, the good thing is if we can encourage people to sleep better, we can improve that. We can reduce their risk of developing Alzheimer's in individuals, even who, who come from families where they are at genetic risk of developing Alzheimer's. So I think often I get asked, you know, what happens when we don't sleep? I quite often want the question to be different. What happens when we do sleep? What's the great stuff that happens when we sleep? Because sometimes I think that's a better way to look at it. It's it's not great to kind of make people worry about their sleep, particularly if they have a sleep pathology or a sleep problem. But let's start switching that dialogue up and talking about the benefits of sleeping. Um, and we know there are many. Um, so so in, in some ways, you know, it'd be nice to have be asked the other question, what are the great things about sleeping? <laughs> So when you promote one of the great things about sleep is that when you're talking about your work with the British Sleep Society and you're working with government there, what are you, in In other words, how are you helping government communicate that and what are you communicating? What, what are you are communicating to the public to say, we want you to take cognizance of this factor of your life? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of influencing policy is 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 always tricky. You know, there are so many sort of competing demands, but I think... Um, there are lots of things that we can encourage employers to do in service of improving their employees' sleep and, and enabling or, or supporting employers to do that. And, and, and the same is true of government is, is all about showing them what benefits can they gain from getting people to sleep more. And there is some really nice, straightforward economic data that demonstrates that when you improve the sleep of employees, they are more productive. And you can actually demonstrate, in fact, 
uh, there's a large RAND economic analysis that has demonstrated significant, I mean, in the billions of um, kind of financial benefit at a national level um, if you could improve the sleep of a nation. And you don't have to do much. You don't have to, you know, get people sleeping, you know, 10 hours a night to achieve that. You need to get them sleeping about an hour more, actually, to start to achieve um, significant economic benefits. Um, and so really, when you're talking to government, that's what they're interested in. Um, you know, they're interested in the bottom bottom line. They're interested in health. They're interested in the health of the nation. Um, and they are interested in measures of sort of happiness. Um, and, you know, it's easy to argue for sleep in those contexts because we can demonstrate an economic benefit. We can demonstrate a health benefit. We can demonstrate reduction in healthcare utilization. Um, and we can actually demonstrate improvements in happiness as well. So um, that's the kind of stuff that we would talk about either, you know, if you're talking to employers or you're talking to um, occupational health departments, or indeed, as you say, if you're talking to government. Well, what would you, if you look at current policy and your work, what would you like to see changed in terms of? the attitude around sleep at the moment yeah i mean as, I think a, that's as, the a, thing as a government is, and as people yeah i mean i think it's it's it is largely an attitudinal one i mean western societies tend to have tended to see sleep as a weakness so you know kind of western capitalist societies have tended to view you know if you're sleeping you're not you're not earning right you're not economically useful um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of dialogue since the 80s, really, or, you know, where there's almost this competitive wakefulness, you know, <laughs> how, how late did you send your last email, you know, you know, pulling all nighters, all these sorts of phrases that um, we don't really see in non-capitalist, non-Western society. So I think it is about changing that dialogue so that people understand that actually in terms of, you know, productivity, if you just want to think about it you know, from a capitalist perspective, um, you know, and and the economy, you're going to be more productive if you've had more sleep, you know, and and as I said, there's there's strong economic arguments for for people sleeping more and better. Um, I think there's also, you know, one of the other things that we are very conscious of is that um, there are issues around equality of access to sleep, actually, so that we know that issues with sleep are more common in individuals who come from uh, more challenging social backgrounds, individuals that come from ethnic minority backgrounds and in women. Um, so there's also an equality question here and an equality in, um, issue around access to healthy sleep. Cool. Just to, just expand it a bit more. Jill, do you want to just, just, uh, just ask a question? Yeah. Just very quickly, just wanted to say, and of course, um, adding to all of that, our children, Ali, yeah. I mean, our, our children now are not sleeping the same amount as, as we used to do because they're up with their iPhones and their screens and uh, in a way that we wouldn't have done in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think the children the or the adolescent in particular question is is an interesting one, isn't it? Um, and, and I think... Um, we tend to focus a lot on devices in in adolescence, and and that that probably is uh, you know part of the problem that 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 adolescents are often using devices until um, late at night, and there's probably an impact of that on their sleep. Although the research on blue light and sleep is is a bit variable, um, but 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 I'm sure that does have a role and. Uh, I think what we have to remember about adolescence is that 
Yes, sleep issues are very common in this stage. This this can relate to poor sleep hygiene and electronic devices, but our our children, our adolescents are experiencing many more pressures in relation to their schedules and their schooling than I think was the case uh, perhaps when you and I were, were that age. Um, there is much more in the way of mental health um, problems in, in, in adolescents and young people now than there, there historically has been. Again, bi-directional relationships, some of that may relate to sleep problems, but I think some of that also causes sleep problems. Um, so depression, anxiety, and conditions like um, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, um, these will have impacts on sleep. But again, you know, poor sleep will tend to worsen uh, issues in terms of behavior and concentration. And you know, issues with poorly controlled mental health will affect sleep. But remembering also that adolescents develop a strong tendency towards being night owls, and that's part of normal development. So they will tend to stay up later at night and want to sleep longer into the morning. Um, but the school day means they have to get up. And so they will often have fallen asleep midnight after midnight, but then still have to get up, uh, particularly if they're traveling a long way to school um, at six, seven o'clock in the morning. And so they've had a really reduced amount of sleep. So I think, you know, it, it's easy to point the finger at devices, um, but I think there is a there is a lot more to adolescent sleep problems than than just devices. And, and finally, I mean, somebody that works in the space so much, can you give us your your best sort of sleep tip um, given all of your information that you are surrounded by every day? Yeah, so I get this one a lot. Um, I, If I had to pick one, I would probably pick routine. Um, so um, what I mean by that is a regular sleep-wake schedule. So in terms of kind of what drives us to sleep, um, there are two processes that help us sleep reliably. Um, uh, what's known as process C and process S. And, and, and process C is the circadian drive to sleep. So that's so the drive that means that we're asleep when it's dark and we're awake when it's light, essentially. Um, but the other process, process S, is about homeostasis. It's about balance. So simply put, the longer you've been awake, the more likely you are to fall asleep. The longer you've been asleep, the more likely you are to wake. And when all these processes are nicely aligned, we tend to fall asleep shortly after we've gone to bed and we tend to wake up at roughly the same time each morning, having had sufficient sleep. When those processes are not aligned, we can struggle to fall asleep um, in a timely fashion when we get to bed. We can struggle with waking during the night and waking too early or, you know, being woken with that horrific sound of your alarm when it's pitch black in the middle of November and you feel like, you know, it's the middle of the night. And one of the ways in which we can align those processes more effectively is by having a regular sleep-wake schedule. So going to bed at around the same time each evening, getting up at about the same time every morning, um, and really trying to avoid, in particular, these kind of prolonged lions at the weekend. Because essentially what happens is by Monday morning, you're jet lagged. You're trying to get yourself immediately back on a schedule that you've been off for two days. So okay, practically speaking, I tend to say have at least five nights per week on that schedule with no more than two consecutive nights off that schedule. But, you know, the more you can stay on the schedule the better, the more reliable your sleep will be. Um, so there are lots of other ways in which we can improve our sleep. But if you ask me for just one, it would be regular scheduling. When I see patients in my clinic who struggle with their sleep, the first thing I do is ask them to complete a sleep diary for me. And the number of patients who have waited months to see me and the 
you know, the most obvious thing that straight away jumps out to me is a completely erratic bed and wake schedule. And so sometimes all you need to do is reschedule these people and their sleep will start to improve. Yeah. Great advice. Dr. Ali here, thanks very much for your time. And uh, we had a very fascinating uh, conversation. That, And again, Dr. Jill Warner is going to be with us for the rest of the podcast. Our second episode drops in just over a week. It's Sleep and Athletic Performance uh, with Dr. Del Rey, who we talked just about that. But for now, it's goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.